He's feeding well. We had his first sleepover at my parents' place the other night, which went very well. He's doing great. We're pretty lucky. He's a very relaxed baby so far. Tristan Lay has lived in Vancouver his whole life. So has his fiance, Nicole, and their son, too. Though, to be fair, their son's whole life has only spanned three months. Everything looks like it's going right for Tristan. He has a stable job, and he's made his way into the middle class. He even has a condo in downtown Vancouver, a city that is often at the top of lists as one of the best places to live in the world. It was always the dream. So why does he feel like he has to get the heck out of Van? We've both always really wanted to provide our family with, you know, a house in a backyard and, and all those things that, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to have when I was growing up uh, in North Van. We kind of had this vision of, you know, kids running around the backyard and barbecues and all that stuff. And that's still definitely what we want. Um, but with the situation we're in right now, we definitely can't do that in Vancouver. That situation he's referring to? It isn't some kind of scary emergency or crisis, per se. It's the fact that on his and Nicole's salaries, they can't afford to pursue the life they always dreamed of. Not when Vancouver remains one of the most expensive places to live in the world. Home prices here are averaging out at just under $2 million for a detached house. So the situation they're in, in short, isn't really so wild. It's their desire to live in Vancouver with a family. I'm quite passionate about Vancouver itself, and I've, I've loved living here for so long. And I, I guess i just like to stress that we just don't really feel like we're part of the fabric here anymore. Um, we feel a little, I don't know if disenfranchised is the right word, but we just feel a little bit like we don't fit in with the plans here. We feel that our goals and the direction that our lives are heading don't mesh with the direction the city's going. That criticism is being echoed by other Tristans and Nicoles in cities across the country, too. The proof is in the numbers. Statistics Canada has found that Canadians have increasingly been moving out of some of the largest urban centres and into the outlying municipalities. Over the course of a 12-month period ending in July 2020, so covering that first wave of the pandemic, Toronto saw a net intra-provincial outflow of more than 50,000 people. That means that a lot more people left the big city for other parts of Ontario than moved into it. And it's a record high, according to data going back two decades. Montreal saw the same thing. Around 25,000 more folks left than came in. Another record high, about 11,000 more than even the previous year. That's a problem for a bunch of reasons. One is that these outlying regions may not be equipped to provide all the services and amenities that new young people from the cities might expect. We've actually seen a lot of examples of culture clash and brewing resentment over big city people taking over smaller communities. One of the stressors being that housing prices have been driven up as people continue to flow in. But the big problem is sprawl. Sprawl is a curse word for urban planners. It leads to more destroyed wildlife habitat, more social isolation, and perhaps worst of all, a deeper dependence on gas-guzzling cars. And the further apart people are, the harder and more expensive it is to efficiently deliver the services your tax money pays for, like healthcare and fire departments. The thing is, we can't seem to break our addiction to sprawl. But if better cities are going to be possible, they're going to need to keep the Tristans and the Nicoles, and they're definitely going to need to keep their adorable babies, too. 
And to do that, cities are going to have to help tweak exactly how middle-class urbanites like them view and achieve the dream. Welcome back to City Space. In this episode, we'll be talking about middle-class housing. I'm Adrian Lee. Good morning! Morning! Good morning! Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. A generation ago, and a few before that, the dream was simple and it was entirely reasonable. Owning a house of your own, with a little yard and everything, in a big city. If you grew up middle class in the city, or know someone else who did, you and they likely had that dream too. Even before the pandemic accelerated a bunch of trends, we were already realizing that housing options in many of Canada's biggest cities are increasingly only accessible to two classes of people. One is people who are eligible for subsidized housing. In Toronto and Vancouver, that's households who make roughly $40,000 or less. The other people are the wealthy, whether that comes by way of having rich parents or a high-paying job. The average price to buy any kind of home in Vancouver or in the greater Toronto area has ballooned to around a million dollars. And it's not gotten much cheaper to rent, even if that's not the dream. Rent for a one-bedroom in both cities hovers around just over $2,000 a month. And though we're used to seeing the two cities battling it out for the top spot on the most expensive real estate rankings, we've now got other cities nipping at their heels. The Canadian Real Estate Association reports that in March of this year, the average sale price of a city home anywhere in Canada was 31.6% higher than it was the previous year. That's a record by any measure, and it's nearly 6% above what it was just the month before that. Canada is home to 38 million people now, and in 22 years, Stats Canada says that number will grow to 46.5, meaning for every four people in the country right now, there will be another one by 2043. So if your city isn't feeling the urgent housing affordability crunch that's at a fever pitch in Toronto and Vancouver, it likely soon will. There are dozens of questions and issues around city housing, and I only get you for another 20 minutes, so we're definitely not getting to them all. So for this episode, we're going to concentrate on this one big but specific question. What can we do to keep the middle class in the city? More on that after this. This podcast is brought to you by Novo Nordisk. For 100 years, Novo Nordisk has been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit novonordisk.ca. There are two ideas that really stood out to us on how to keep the middle class in cities. The first one revolves around making more homes and making them more varied. Not just ones you can buy, but ones you can and would actually want to rent. I spoke with Jennifer Kiesmat, who was Toronto's chief city planner from 2012 to 2017. These days, though, she switched things up to become a housing developer. 
She co-founded Marquee Developments, which focuses on creating affordable rental housing. As rising house prices continue to far exceed wage growth year after year, Jennifer's been asking, what even is the point of housing? If it used to be about housing people, it feels like it's much less so about that now. Buying a place to live has really become a way to add a big asset to your personal finance portfolio. That's a bunch of words that for an entire generation of the future middle class only reaffirms that this is how you become a capital A adult. The dream, basically, now also means that your house is also about accumulating equity for your eventual retirement. But because so many people want to get what looks like a pretty good bet for making money, the price of housing has skyrocketed. So where are the people who can't afford to see housing this way going to live exactly? Well, I think we need to go back to first principles and around what housing is. And why is it that home ownership is seen as being more stable than rental? Well, mostly because rental housing has not been purpose built. You know, I had a nephew with a young family living in downtown Toronto. He was an entrepreneur. And in a three year period, he got pushed out of his housing four times with small children. Well, why was that? Well, because he was in a condo that was being rented to him by someone who was treating it as an investment property. That's very different from purpose-built affordable housing. If you look at a city like New York, and I love this because New York is like a beacon of capitalism, (laughs) but the only reason New York City works is because there is a significant amount of affordable rental housing that has been secured and is protected as affordable in perpetuity, where you can live your entire life and you're not going to get pushed out. You know, think about our favorite TV show, Friends, right? Um, The rent control department, which in some ways people see that as a bad thing because some people have housing that isn't priced against the market. But I think the question we have to ask is, why is housing priced to the market? Shouldn't housing be about a home? And if we want to have things like arts and culture in our city, if we want to have entrepreneurs in our city, if we want to have essential workers in our city, then we need to be providing stable housing that is a home over the long term. Could we be in any more trouble without better rent options? Kismet says our obsession with home ownership doesn't quite reflect the reality of Canada. About 70% of Montrealers, 60% of Victorians, and 50% of Torontonians rent. But there's this pervasive myth, she says, that tells us that renting is a poor financial decision because owning property is your ticket to a cushy retirement. But the costs involved, the increasing price of land, and of course those fickle markets, make that far from a guarantee. Kismet says we're hung up on two unsustainable concepts when it comes to home ownership. The first is that we're status chasers here in North America. If you own a home, it tells people, hey, I'm a success and I've made it. The second concept is that we tend to believe that the past can predict the future. Economics sure loves that concept too. Even though the Canadian housing market was rosy for a while there, that sure doesn't guarantee that it will be in the future. That's particularly true if, like many, you're buying your home at sometimes upward of 10 times your salary. Unlike your grandparents, who likely bought their home for around double what they earned. But for many young middle-class millennials, renting just isn't it. It's not a house to call their own, and so it feels like it's just not the dream. That's why the trick might be to make rented property dreamier. 
I also spoke to Roland Stanley, who has done planning work in cities like St. Louis, Toronto, suburban Washington, D.C., and Calgary, where he was the former general manager of planning. He also believes in building new kinds of more desirable rental units, but he also thinks cities should reimagine what they already have. One of my former employees in Calgary is now working in uh, St. John, New Brunswick. All these ancient historical buildings sitting there waiting to have something happen. It's a simple solution in, in, in that town. Provide tax credits for restoring historic buildings. In St. Louis, we led the entire nation and, and put, we put over 4,000 units of housing, affordable units, in downtown St. Louis and abandoned old 1800s, 1900s office and industrial buildings through using housing tax credits for historic buildings. It offsets the cost by as much as 40%. And all of a sudden, if they could do that in St. John, all of a sudden, all those buildings downtown become viable candidates for rehabilitation. And there's buildings in Calgary like that. It may sound kind of naive to believe our city governments might develop these tax tools to convert historical buildings into affordable housing instead of, you know, selling them to developers who keep the facade to denote some kind of false reverence all while building luxury condos above them or something like that. But Roland insists it isn't naive. As long as there's one crucial element. There has to be a political will to say, we can build single family homes. The yards are smaller, but we can build a lot of them next to some townhouses. And now you're blending a mix of housing for all market needs. And the city can do that today with a little bit of legislative changes to try and start down that road to generate more tax revenue, provide that product. Okay. So having varied renting options and better use of the buildings we do have, those are some good ideas for keeping the middle class in our cities. But what about the city space beyond your doorstep? How do we quench that thirst for space without sprawling out for more? We'll talk about that after this. Since the beginning of our company, Novo Nordisk, 100 years ago, we have been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives. And while people today are living longer than ever before, rising rates of obesity and diabetes threaten the health and prosperity of future generations. Together with our partners, we are going beyond medicine to strengthen disease prevention and early intervention, driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit novonordisk.ca. City dwellers have cried out for more room to stretch out on since forever. But maybe that's because they haven't truly had access to high-quality public space. Here's Jennifer again. My parents are both from Holland, and my mother was raised in a town called Harlem. And what's interesting about the town that she was raised in is that the housing typology is mostly row homes, and they're very, very uh, tiny row homes. The whole concept of a starter home never existed. Everyone essentially lived in a very similar built form. And indeed, when we went back to visit, you know, I had a, a great uncle who was an executive at Phillips and he was still living in this very, you know, narrow, tiny home, which was similar to the one that my, that my mother grew up in, just around the corner, in fact. Um, so this idea of housing, there's a couple of different things tied up in this. And one is housing as status. 
um, you get a bigger home because it's a reflection of the fact that you're moving up in the world, right? Um, and I do think that idea has been, from a sustainability perspective, um, a disastrous one. But in touring Harlem with my mother, one of the other layers that you saw was these phenomenal public spaces, creating a new kind of social contract around really high quality public spaces and shared spaces in exchange for a smaller personal space. And that kind of a social contract, which I believe still exists in many European cities today, um, is something that in the context of COVID broke down very quickly because we did something terrible in many of our cities, which is we shut down our public spaces, which, you know, it it broke that social contract. Parks are critical when you don't have a backyard. They're essential. And so I think a fundamental misunderstanding of that new social contract that links smaller personal spaces to higher quality and more accessible and better public spaces and public amenities like excellent subways and excellent LRTs If we break that down and we sever that relationship, then we shouldn't be surprised when people say, holy smokes, I'm out of here. I can't use those public amenities, which were sort of part of the deal that I would be able to walk to the park, that I could walk for for coffee, that I could walk to meet my friends. So I think we need to make that link again. And if we don't make that link, if we don't get our city building right, then yeah, we shouldn't be surprised when there's a huge pressure for more suburban sprawl. That link is the tricky nub of it all. Urban planning experts are all about the idea of less sprawl and more density. That is, building more housing units on whatever space is available. But while it seems like the logically right thing to do, actually living in density can be a whole other can of worms. Heck, it can even feel like people are living in that kind of a tight can. It's little wonder that the COVID-19 pandemic caused people to flee dense cities at a time when we didn't know about the virus and we couldn't know if we could trust the aerosols of our neighbors. It just shows how scary and constricting density can seem when it's done poorly. In short, it shows what happens when people confuse density for crowding. In the past, being able to be alone or just with your family was a huge achievement. Only the largest class, that is, the poor, lived huddled together because they had no other choice but to live in tight crowds. And so, as soon as people had money, obviously they wanted to move out and get their own space. In the later decades of the 20th century, more and more people tucked themselves away in these private kingdoms, and it's been, well, kind of disastrous. On the surface, it may not seem that way. Suburban advocates promised a place to escape city pollution, for example. Except suburban living is harsh on the environment. More personal space, they said. Well, except that more space actually makes people buy more stuff to fill all that space. What about better health? Well, we thought that would be the outcome at first. But numerous studies now claim that social isolation can increase mortality by 30%. And in fact, despite the fears... Research found that density, in itself, was not the leading cause of COVID-19 infection. And there's proof that all of these issues, environmental, psychological, and physical combined, compound with each generation that chooses that private kingdom lifestyle. We created a lot of sterile suburbs connected by wide highways. And in large part, it's because we believed we needed space from each other. 
But on top of all the altruistic societal reasons for living close to other people, there's also something to be said about the personal benefits. That is, the moderating influence of living close to others. For that to kick in, the surroundings have to be uplifting, which means compact, well-ordered cities with lots of public places to hang out. On a trip to the neighborhood of Cartagena in Colombia, where the balconies nearly touch above the public streets, the philosopher Alain de Botton noticed that there was enough privacy for a distinct home and personal space, but enough closeness that people near you were more than just faceless neighbors. The fact that everyone is a little bit on display to each other, he noticed, actually seems to make everyone a little nicer. Living close to each other might not come to us naturally, but there are lots of things to be gained from it. Planners and designers tend to give us tons of privacy because they think that's what we desperately need. But some overlap in living, like they have in Cartagena, seems to tap into our evolutionary need to be a little bit together with each other. And if you're like me, a millennial, and yikes, most of us are firmly in our 30s now, you might think it's impossible to shake the idea that a big house and backyard are the only true markers of housing success. But here's Dad, I mean Rob Carrick, personal finance columnist for the Globe and Mail, to convince you otherwise. We've got to stop shaming these people. We, uh, you know, I know that millennials feel so much pressure to buy from their boomer parents, you know, because we had such success. We wish it for you and we're going to pressure you until you get in. But I don't think the older generation understands what the younger generation's up against. So we have to educate boomers as much as millennials and Gen Y about what, about renting being an okay solution. I know it's not ideal. I mean, we're trained to want a lot of space. But you can raise a family in a two-bedroom condo if you need to. You can, I mean, you can sort of say that your space restrictions are offset by being close to work and close to um, all kinds of urban experiences that, that make life enjoyable. We have to stop acting like a big house with a big yard is the only way to live. Look, it's hard to give up beliefs you've held for a long time. Beliefs that owning housing and space guarantees a better quality of life, or shows that you're a success to others, or secures your financial future. But not only is that not necessarily true, it's not even tenable. Cities have a chance right now in this crucial period, before city populations really explode, before climate change starts to really begin to show its damage, to reshape how we think about housing and how we think about density in city life. To make cities work better, the people who live in them need to be convinced that it's good to dream. But the real trick is to live some aspects of the dream while wide awake. On the next episode of City Space, we're looking at war. Or rather, what we're really talking about when we talk about the battle between cars and bikes in cities. We'll be looking at how things got so tribal on our streets how these kinds of personal transportation identities actually make it way harder to make city life better, and what we can do about it. City Space is produced by Julia De Laurentiis Johnston. This episode was written by Julia, Kieran Rana, Stephanie Chan, and me, Adrian Lee, with research assistance from Shannon Clark. Our theme song is by Andrew Austin. Evan Miles of Post Office Sound edits our show. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana, Thank you to our guests this episode, Jennifer Keysmat, Rollin Stanley, Rob Carrick, and Tristan Lay, for lending us their time to record this show remotely. You can find Jennifer on Twitter at Jen underscore Keysmat and Rob at R Carrick. 
If you like what you heard, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and tell your favorite city dweller about city space, too. I'm Adrian Lee. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon.